The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 2005, author Kurt Vonnegut came out with a book called A Man Without a Country, in which he provided a litmus test for what it means to be a twerp. I consider anybody a twerp, he wrote, who hasn't read the greatest American short story, which is Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce. It isn't remotely political. It is a flawless example of American genius, like Sophisticated Lady by Duke Ellington or The Franklin Stove, end quote. High praise indeed. Well, listeners, if you want to check out Sophisticated Lady or maybe buy yourself a Franklin Stove to admire, you are on your own. But if you want to escape twerpdom by reading or at least listening to An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce, you are in luck. We take a look at Ambrose Bierce and his masterpiece of a short story today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. So glad to be here with you today. Twerpdom. You don't want to be there living in a state of twerpitude. I've been getting a lot of requests to read more short stories, but I juggle all these requests. Some people ask for more episodes where I dive into a book. Some want more poetry. Some want more guests. Some clamor for Mike Palindrome. Some want to hear from older authors or newer authors. I, I, I will try to get as much to... Sorry. <laughs> I will try to get to as much as I can, my friends. We're doing 100 episodes a year. I know there's a lot to cover. Not every episode will have everything all at once. So, today we have a great short story, which I will read. A great and very influential short story. Ambrose Bierce is one of those people who maybe doesn't get the credit he should. He's like a Wilkie Collins or a Scottie Pippen or Robin, dwelling in the penumbra of another more famous planet. His Dickens and... Jordan and Batman is Mark Twain, seven years older than Bierce, also a newspaper man, also a humorist, and the one who's still a household name in America, at least, and Bierce is not quite that. But Bierce deserves his own space. He was prolific and wide-ranging. He was a pioneer of realistic fiction. He was extremely witty, and he's got a spot in the history of literature for his book, The Devil's Dictionary, as well as his tales of soldiers and civilians, and his story and occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Also his genre writing and his journalism, and as a little spot as the inspiration for Carlos Fuentes' novel The Old Gringo. Bierce is a fun writer and a fun person to read about. The august and somewhat snobbish writer, William Dean Howells, once said, Bierce is among our three greatest writers. And Bierce, when he was told of the comment, said, I'm sure Mr. Howells is the other two. It's good stuff. Bierce was born in Ohio in 1842, which, if you're doing quick math, you'll note, that puts him in prime age to be in the Civil War, which, in fact, was his fate. He grew up in Indiana, where he finished high school and 
started work as a printer's apprentice for about a year before signing up for the Indiana Volunteers with the Union Army. He was wounded in the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain in 1864 and finished his service as a major. From there, after he got out of the Army, he went to San Francisco, where he met Mark Twain, already famous for his story, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, among other works. The two became friends and rivals. San Francisco was a hub of literary activity at the time, and Beers found work as an editor as well as a writer. He also lived in England for a few years, and he lived in the Dakotas, where he worked as a placer miner, a form of panning for gold, which apparently did not pan out. And if you're wondering if the phrase pan out comes from panning for gold, yes, in fact, it does. One of Beers' books was called Nuggets and Dust Panned Out in California. Another one was called Cobwebs from an Empty Skull. Another was The Fiend's Delight, and of course, The Devil's Dictionary. Beers was very good at writing titles. He was also restless, both as a writer and as a person. His writing was innovative. He wrote about the supernatural. He wrote supernatural stories and horror stories and war stories. He wrote lampoons and satires. His devil's dictionary... Well, actually, let's take a quick break and then hear some of the dictionary entries. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We're talking about Ambrose Beers, his life and works. As I mentioned, he wrote lots of different styles of stories, including realistic fiction and what H.P. Lovecraft admired as, quote, weird fiction, end quote. And Beers famously wrote The Devil's Dictionary, which demonstrates his razor-sharp wit. Piano, says the dictionary. Noun, a parlor utensil for subduing the impenitent visitor. It is operated by depressing the keys of the machine and the spirits of the audience. Telephone, noun, an invention of the devil which abrogates some of the advantages of making a disagreeable person keep his distance. Telescope. Noun. A device having a relation to the eye similar to that of the telephone to the ear, enabling distant objects to plague us with a multitude of needless details. Luckily, it is unprovided with a bell summoning us to the sacrifice. Cat. Noun. 
a soft, indestructible automaton provided by nature to be kicked when things go wrong in the domestic circle. Cabbage. Noun. A familiar kitchen garden vegetable about as large and wise as a man's head. And on we go. A consul is, in American politics, a person who, having failed to secure an office from the people, is given one by the administration, on condition that he leave the country. A fork is an instrument used chiefly for the purpose of putting dead animals into the mouth. Formerly, the knife was used for this purpose, and by many worthy persons is still thought to have many advantages over the other tool, which, however, they do not altogether reject, but used to assist in the charging of the knife. The immunity of these persons from swift and awful death is one of the most striking proofs of God's mercy to those that hate him. An envelope becomes something like a poem. The coffin of a document, the scabbard of a bill, the husk of a remittance, the bedgown of a love letter. To exhort verb transitive, is in religious affairs to put the conscience of another upon the spit and roast it to a nut-brown discomfort. Applause is the echo of a platitude. An elegy is a composition in verse in which, without employing any of the methods of humor, the writer aims to produce in the reader's mind the dampest kind of dejection. And finally, one of my favorites, education, noun, that which discloses to the wise and disguises from the foolish their lack of understanding. You can hear the cynicism and sadness in Bierce's Devil's Dictionary. It's no wonder Vonnegut was a fan. There's a similar, they share a similar sensibility. Humans are awful, but life is good, and humor is the best approach to both. Bierce had a rough life. He was born in a log cabin, the tenth of thirteen. All of them, all, all of his siblings had names, starting with an A, by the way. Abigail, Amelia, Anne, Addison, Aurelius, Augustus, Almeida, Andrew, Albert, Ambrose, Arthur, Adelia, and Aurelia. His parents were poor. After high school, he attended a military institute that burned down when he was there. During the war, he fought in some of the most horrific battles of the Civil War, and then, at the fighting at Kennesaw Mountain, he suffered a traumatic brain injury. He had, was shot in the head by a Confederate bullet, hospitalized for months, and yet he went back into action later that year, in spite of his bouts of dizziness and frequent blackouts, which would afflict him for the rest of his life. Finally, he had to resign from the Army, and where he, uh, after he resigned, he found work as a map maker. He worked for the Treasury and the Mint before heading out to San Francisco and the launch of his writing career. But even as he found success as a writer, his troubles didn't end. He wrote a poem that satirically joked that President McKinley would be assassinated, and then McKinley was, and critics were furious with Bierce, blaming him for the assassination, saying that he had called for it. He was working for William Randolph Hearst at the time, famous from the movie Citizen Kane. It wasn't the first time that Bierce landed Hearst in hot water, though Hearst remained loyal to him and continued to employ him. 
Once Hearst sent him to D.C. to cover an ongoing scandal, the railroads had borrowed $130 million from the U.S. government to build the Transcontinental Railroad, the first link by rail of the east and west of the United States. The railroads then lobbied the government to be excused from repaying the loans, which was something like 4 or $5 billion in today's money. They found a congressman to support them, and they were ready to sneak the bill through with no public scrutiny. Bierce arrived and wrote column after column, exposing and denouncing the scheme. Finally, an executive who had bribed the congressman asked Bierce to name his price. Bierce said, quote, My price is $130 million. If, when you are ready to pay, I happen to be out of town, you may hand it over to my friend, the Treasurer of the United States. End quote. Newspapers picked up the story of Bierce being in D.C. and his quote to the would-be lobbyist, and the bill was defeated. But I got sidetracked. The victories in Bierce's personal life were outweighed by the losses. He learned that his wife was likely cheating on him. He found some letters suggesting as much, and the two separated. One of their sons died of alcoholism and pneumonia. The other committed suicide after being rejected by a woman. Actually, he shot the woman and her fiancé first. And though those shots were not fatal, uh, the one that he reserved for himself was. And Bierce's war wounds plagued him. They made him irritable. He suffered from asthma as well. He had those blackouts all of his life. And he finally divorced his wife, and she died the following year. But that didn't end things for him. He had one last trip up his sleeve, one last adventure. In spite of the horrors of war and the damage they had inflicted on him, he engaged in a highly unusual journey at age 71. He left D.C., where he'd been living, and headed out to the Civil War battlefields to revisit them. And then... He just kept going. He went through Louisiana and Texas and into Mexico, which was then in a revolution. This was 1913. He joined Pancho Villa's army as an observer and then kept traveling with them. The day after Christmas, he wrote a letter to a friend which concluded, As to me, I leave here tomorrow for an unknown destination. End quote. And then he disappeared. There was no trace of him after that. Nobody knows what happened to him to this day. Some say he committed suicide, perhaps in the Grand Canyon. Others say he was executed by firing squad in a cemetery. An earlier letter had said, Goodbye. If you hear of my being stood up against a Mexican stone wall and shot to rags, please know that I think it is a pretty good way to depart this life. It beats old age, disease, or falling down the cellar stairs. To be a gringo in Mexico. Ah, that is euthanasia. And now we turn to his most famous story, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, written in 1890 when Bierce was 48, so roughly halfway between the Civil War and the Mexican Revolution. 25 or so years later, but after the Civil War, but Bierce is looking back now to a Confederate supporter named Farquhar. 
Beers himself was an abolitionist and a Union soldier, but in this case, though Farquhar was a wealthy planter and a slave owner, the story is, as Vonnegut said, not about politics. Rather, it's about the dignity of death. It also jumps around in time and has a famous twist ending. Let's take our last break and then hear an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce 1. A man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama, looking down into the swift water twenty feet below. The man's hands were behind his back, the wrists bound with a cord. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross-timber above his head, and the slack fell to the level of his knees. Some loose boards laid upon the ties supporting the rails of the railway supplied a footing for him and his executioners. Two private soldiers of the Federal Army, directed by a sergeant who in civil life may have been a deputy sheriff. At a short remove upon the same temporary platform was an officer in the uniform of his rank, armed. He was a captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle in the position known as support, that is to say, vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm thrown straight across the chest, a formal and unnatural position enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It did not appear to be the duty of these two men to know what was occurring at the center of the bridge. They merely blockaded the two ends of the foot planking that traversed it. Beyond one of the sentinels, nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight away into a forest for a hundred yards, then, curving, was lost to view. Doubtless there was an outpost farther along. The other bank of the stream was open ground, a gentle slope topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks, loopholed for rifles, with a single embrasure through which protruded the muzzle of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. Midway up the slope between the bridge and fort were the spectators, a single company of infantry in line at parade rest, the butts of their rifles on the ground, the barrels inclining slightly backward against the right shoulder, the hands crossed upon the stock. A lieutenant stood at the right of the line, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right. Excepting the group of four at the center of the bridge, not a man moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily, motionless. The sentinels, facing the banks of the stream, might have been statues to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing the work of his subordinates, but making no sign. Death is a dignitary who, when he comes announced, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect even by those most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of deference. The man who was engaged in being hanged was apparently about 35 years of age. He was a civilian, if one might judge from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good, a straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead, from which his long, dark hair was combed straight back, falling behind his ears to the collar of his well-fitting frock coat. 
He wore a mustache and pointed beard, but no whiskers. His eyes were large and dark gray, and had a kindly expression which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in the hemp. Evidently, this was no vulgar assassin. The liberal military code makes provision for hanging many kinds of persons, and gentlemen are not excluded. The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside, and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted, and placed himself immediately behind that officer, who in turn moved apart one pace. These movements left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on the two ends of the same plank, which spanned three of the cross-ties of the bridge. The end upon which the civilian stood almost, but not quite, reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain. It was now held by that of the sergeant. At a signal from the former, the latter would step aside, the plank would tilt, and the condemned man go down between two ties. The arrangement commended itself to his judgment as simple and effective. His face had not been covered, nor his eyes bandaged. He looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling water of the stream racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention, and his eyes followed it down the current. How slowly it appeared to move. What a sluggish stream. He closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. The water, touched to gold by the early sun, the brooding mists under the banks at some distance down the stream, the fort, the soldiers, the piece of drift, all had distracted him. And now he became conscious of a new disturbance. Striking through the thought of his dear ones was sound which he could neither ignore nor understand, a sharp, distinct, metallic percussion, like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil. It had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was, and whether immeasurably distant or nearby. It seemed both. Its recurrence was regular, but as slow as the tolling of a death knell. He awaited each new stroke with impatience, and, he knew not why, apprehension. The intervals of silence grew progressively longer. The delays became maddening. With their greater infrequency, the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They hurt his ear like the thrust of a knife. He feared he would shriek. What he heard was the ticking of his watch. He unclosed his eyes and saw again the water below him. If I could free my hands, he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. By diving I could evade the bullets and, swimming vigorously, reach the bank, take to the woods and get away home. My home, thank God, is as yet outside their lines. My wife and little ones are still beyond the invaders' farthest advance." As these thoughts, which have here to be set down in words, were flashed into the doomed man's brain rather than evolved from it, the captain nodded to the sergeant. The sergeant stepped aside. 2. Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planter of an old and highly respected Alabama family. 
Being a slave owner, and like other slave owners, a politician, he was naturally an original secessionist and ardently devoted to the Southern cause. Circumstances of an imperious nature, which it is unnecessary to relate here, had prevented him from taking service with that gallant army which had fought the disastrous campaigns ending with the fall of Corinth, and he had chafed under the inglorious restraint longing for the release of his energies, the larger life of the soldier, the opportunity for distinction. That opportunity, he felt, would come, as it comes to all in wartime. Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in the aid of the South, no adventure too perilous for him to undertake if consistent with the character of a civilian who was at heart a soldier, and who in good faith and without too much qualification assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war. One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on a rustic bench near the entrance to his grounds, a gray-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. Mrs. Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands. While she was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. The Yanks are repairing the railroads, said the man, and are getting ready for another advance. They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge, put it in order, and built a stockade on the north bank. The commandant has issued an order, which is posted everywhere, declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, its bridges, tunnels, or trains, will be summarily hanged. I saw the order. How far is it to the Owl Creek Bridge? Farquhar asked. About thirty miles. Is there no force on this side of the creek? Only a picket post half a mile out on the railroad, and a single sentinel at this end of the bridge. Suppose a man, a civilian and student of hanging, should elude the picket post and perhaps get the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. What could he accomplish? The soldier reflected. I was there a month ago he replied, I observed that the flood of last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against the wooden pier at this end of the bridge. It is now dry, and would burn like tinder. The lady had now brought the water, which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband, and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation, going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was a federal scout. 3. As Peyton Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness and was as one already dead. From this state he was awakened, ages later it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat, followed by a sense of suffocation. Keen, poignant agonies seemed to shoot from his neck downward through every fiber of his body and limbs. These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification and to beat with an inconceivably rapid periodicity. They seemed like streams of pulsating fire heating him to an intolerable temperature. As to his head, he was conscious of nothing but a feeling of fullness, of congestion, these sensations were unaccompanied by thought. The intellectual part of his nature was already effaced. He had power only to feel, 
and feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion, encompassed in a luminous cloud of which he was now merely the fiery heart without material substance, he swung through unthinkable arcs of oscillation, like a vast pendulum. Then, all at once, with terrible suddenness, the light about him shot upward with the noise of a loud splash. A frightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. The power of thought was restored. He knew that the rope had broken, and he had fallen into the stream. There was no additional strangulation. The noose about his neck was already suffocating him and kept the water from his lungs. To die of hanging at the bottom of a river— the idea seemed to him ludicrous. He opened his eyes in the darkness and saw above him a gleam of light, but how distant, how inaccessible. He was still sinking, for the light became fainter and fainter until it was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and brighten, and he knew that he was rising toward the surface, knew it with reluctance, for he was now very comfortable. To be hanged and drowned, he thought, that is not so bad but I do not wish to be shot. No, I will not be shot. That is not fair. He was not conscious of an effort, but a sharp pain in his wrist apprised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention, as an idler might observe the feet of a juggler without interest in the outcome. What splendid effort! What magnificent! What superhuman strength! Ah, that was a fine endeavor! Bravo! The cord fell away, his arms parted and floated upward, the hands dimly seen on each side in the growing light. He watched them with a new interest as first one and then the other pounced upon the noose at his neck. They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, its undulations resembling those of a water snake. Put it back, put it back. He thought he shouted these words to his hands for the undoing of the noose had been succeeded by the direst pang that he had yet experienced. His neck ached horribly, his brain was on fire, his heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out at his mouth. His whole body was racked and wrenched with an insupportable anguish, but his disobedient hands gave no heed to the command. They beat the water vigorously with quick downward strokes, forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge. His eyes were blinded by the sunlight. His chest expanded convulsively. And with a supreme and crowning agony, his lungs engulfed a great draft of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were, indeed, preternaturally keen and alert. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves, and the veining of each leaf. He saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colors in all the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass, the humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonfly's wings, the strokes of the water spider's legs, 
like oars which had lifted their boat. All these made audible music. A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of its body parting the water. He had come to the surface, facing down the stream. In a moment, the visible world seemed to wheel slowly round, himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge, the fort, the soldiers upon the bridge, the captain, the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners. They were in silhouette against the blue sky. They shouted and gesticulated, pointing at him. The captain had drawn his pistol, but did not fire. The others were unarmed. Their movements were grotesque and horrible, their forms gigantic. Suddenly he heard a sharp report, and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, spattering his face with spray. He heard a second report, and saw one of the sentinels with his rifle at his shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. He observed that it was a gray eye, and remembered having read that gray eyes were keenest, and that all famous marksmen had them. Nevertheless, this one had missed. A counter-swirl had caught Farquhar and turned him half round. He was again looking at the forest on the bank opposite the fort. The sound of a clear, high voice in a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him, and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds, even the beating of the ripples in his ears. Although no soldier, he had frequented camps enough to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawling, aspirated chant. The lieutenant on shore was taking a part in the morning's work. How coldly and pitilessly, with what an even, calm intonation, presaging and enforcing tranquility in the men, with what accurately measured interval fell those cruel words. Company! Attention! Shoulder arms! Ready! Aim! Fire! Farquhar dived, dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Niagara, yet he heard the dull thunder of the volley, and, rising again toward the surface, met shining bits of metal, singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on the face and hands, then fell away, continuing their descent. One lodged between his collar and neck. It was uncomfortably warm, and he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, gasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long time underwater. He was perceptibly farther downstream, nearer to safety. The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine as they were drawn from the barrels, turned in the air, and thrust into their sockets. The two sentinels fired again, independently and ineffectually. The hunted man saw all this over his shoulder. He was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was as energetic as his arms and legs. He thought with the rapidity of lightning. The officer, he reasoned, will not make that martinet's error a second time. It is as easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He has probably already given the command to fire at will. God help me, I cannot dodge them all. An appalling splash within two yards of him was followed by a loud, rushing sound, diminuendo, 
which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort and died in an explosion which stirred the very river to its deeps. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinded him, strangled him. The cannon had taken a hand in the game. As he shook his head free from the commotion of the smitten water, he heard the deflected shot humming through the air ahead, and in an instant it was cracking and smashing the branches in the forest beyond. They will not do that again, he thought. The next time they will use a charge of grape. I must keep my eye upon the gun. The smoke will apprise me. The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. Suddenly he felt himself whirled round and round, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forests, the now distant bridge, fort, and men were all commingled and blurred. Objects were represented by their colors only, circular horizontal streaks of color. That was all he saw. He had been caught in a vortex and was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration which made him giddy and sick. In a few moments he was flung upon the gravel at the foot of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank, and behind a projecting point which concealed him from his enemies. The sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel, restored him, and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it over himself in handfuls, and audibly blessed it. It looked like diamonds, rubies, emeralds. He could think of nothing beautiful which it did not resemble. The trees upon the bank were giant garden plants. He noted a definite order in their arrangement, inhaled the fragrance of their blooms. A strange roseate light shone through the spaces among their trunks, and the wind made in their branches the music of Aeolian harps. He had no wish to perfect his escape. He was content to remain in that enchanting spot until retaken. A whiz and a rattle of grape-shot among the branches high above his head roused him from his dream. The baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell. He sprang to his feet, rushed up the sloping bank, and plunged into the forest. All that day he traveled, laying his course by the rounding sun. The forest seemed interminable. Nowhere did he discover a break in it, not even a woodman's road. He had not known that he lived in so wild a region. There was something uncanny in the revelation. By nightfall he was fatigued, footsore, famished. The thought of his wife and children urged him on. At last he found a road which led him in what he knew to be the right direction. It was as wide and straight as a city street, yet it seemed untraveled. No fields bordered it, no dwelling anywhere. Not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation. The black bodies of the trees formed a straight wall on both sides, terminating on the horizon in a point like a diagram and a lesson in perspective. Overhead, as he looked up through this rift in the wood, shone great golden stars, looking unfamiliar and grouped in strange constellations. He was sure they were arranged in some order, which had a secret and malign significance. The wood on either side was full of singular noises, among which, once, twice, and again, he distinctly heard whispers in an unknown tongue. His neck was in pain, and lifting his hand to it, he found it horribly swollen. He knew that it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it. His eyes felt congested. He could no longer close them. 
His tongue was swollen with thirst. He relieved its fever by thrusting it forward from between his teeth into the cold air. How softly the turf had carpeted the untraveled avenue. He could no longer feel the roadway beneath his feet. Doubtless, despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while walking, for now he sees another scene. Perhaps he has merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All is as he left it, and all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have traveled the entire night. As he pushes open the gate and passes up the wide, white walk, he sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the steps, she stands waiting, with a smile of ineffable joy, an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. Ah, how beautiful she is! He springs forward with extended arms. As he is about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow upon the back of the neck. A blinding white light blazes all about him with a sound like the shock of a cannon. Then all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Did you follow the story, dear listeners? It all took place in a moment, a moment that flashes before your eyes. In that moment, Peyton Farquhar felt the dignity of life, of the world around us, and what he was leaving behind, which I hope is in store for all of us. This can be a very dignified place. We humans can express it and exude it, even as most of us are ridiculous most of the time. Ridiculous but with dignity. That's what we are as a species, don't you think? Speaking of ridiculous, but with dignity, or at least ridiculous with aspirations of dignity, and sometimes vice versa. More vice than versa, I'm afraid. I'm Jack Wilson. Lots of great shows coming up. Please do subscribe and tell all your friends. That really helps us out. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.